Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me busting through and living life full out get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail hey everybody welcome you know i want to introduce all of you to someone that knows up close and personal what it is like to be in the middle of some people calling it a perfect storm But when you think about this and you think about what the perfect storm is, do you think about miracles? Do you think hurricanes? What do you think about? Well, joining me here today is Linda Cunningham and 63rd anniversary of Hurricane Audrey. This is something that you're going to want to hear about because this new novel talks about a deadly storm, the fury the purpose, the passion, the people, the energy around this, and what it takes for all of us to stand tall in the face of disaster. Um, Thank you so much for joining me here today, Linda, and uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pat. It's a pleasure to be with you today. You know, many of us have gone through some of the most horrific things in our lives, Um, Many understand exactly about what it looks like to be in the middle of, some people call it a perfect storm, boy, it's not that at all. But for you, and literally writing a gripping, powerful, just amazing depiction, it's just first earth shattering and groundbreaking. You know, I want to ask you about this and the journey how has this changed you and how is the stories that you tell a story or stories for this day and age we live in today, especially through this novel? Well, I was a nine-year-old child when Hurricane Audrey hit and I was at my house surrounded by tall, tall, huge trees and it was devastating when I saw the power of the wind and the power of nature, it frightened me so badly. But that was not even all of it for, for me, um, because when I witnessed the uh, people coming in, we took in refugees, refugees in our household, and they told us their stories. And it was the most gripping thing for a nine-year-old to, to witness. Because my father was director of civil defense, and he heard all of the survival stories. He knew everything that was going on. And I saw the coroner's pictures of all the nearly um, nearly 500 victims. Mm. Uh, saw those pictures as a child. I probably wasn't supposed to be seeing that, but <laughs> <laughs> I did. But anyway, it was so gripping for me when I saw these people at our kitchen table and I'm standing there as a nine-year-old and they're telling us that I was in a tree and the wind and the waves were 
you know, hitting us. And I was holding on to my two children, Mm. my two toddlers. One was a baby, one was a toddler. And my arms gave out, and I dropped them. Mm. You know, to witness that as a nine-year-old is haunting for the rest of my life. But you know what? Anytime there is a negative that happens in your life, you can transform. You know, you can you can make this transformation because that's what I did. I took these haunting scenes and feelings as a child, and I put them into this book to help other people. So in my story, 12-year-old Walt LaCour, it is very cathartic for him in the end, but it was also very cathartic for me as an author to release all of this. It really is. And, you know, I so relate to it because, you know, I watched my family go through Hurricane Andrew. And oh I know. And the impact of something like that and, and really looking at what we're capable of overcoming is really a reflection of how many gifts we have been given in this earth skin we carry. Um, oh, I love that. No, but you, your book really talks to that because what it talks to is beyond this layer of skin we have beyond the flesh, the bones, there's something extraordinary in all of us. And isn't that sort of the essence of what your passion and purpose has been? And sort of the, how should I say it? One of the major themes in what you write about and, and beautifully encourage people about, whether it's both of us, whether it's the abusive nature of alcohol in our family or not, here we are today. Here you are talking about it. And I want to ask you, what is the most impactful vision you want for people as they move forward and as you are celebrating this anniversary? I want them to recognize miracles. I set this book up at the very beginning, uh, and it's a book about transformation. And so at the very beginning, I'm saying, uh, you know, uh, that Walt climbs this oak tree, and he says, quoting, I climbed higher and higher into a higher perspective. That sets this whole transformation up throughout the book. And then also in the <clears throat> the very beginning of the book, um, he's drowning. And he while he's drowning, he sees uh, a leaf. And he says, I'm, I'm quoting again, I marveled at the intricacies of a single oak leaf with its webbing thoroughfare of veins. I remembered that I had the sense that I had been a witness to miracles like the leaf, but did not see them because of the swirling debris of my life. It was a great sin. I got to tell you, I love, I love that because how many of us right now are in the middle of swirling debris of our life? And, you know, if we take a moment to reflect the way that you're inviting us to reflect, one of the things that will happen is that we will realize that we are capable of more than we could consciously, logically depict. 
because every day we are given miracles in our lives. And what a gift for you to have that breath, you know, that, that intake of beautiful blessings and air that comes in so that you can share this and help others. You know, did you think that that's where this would go when you, when you, when you put pen to it? Well, I didn't know what the plan was. I, I pray every day for guidance, but more than guidance, I pray to follow that guidance. And I prayed before every, every time I sat down at the computer to write, I was praying um, that whatever needs to come through, I had a general idea of where I was going with it. But the nuances of it came about yeah. while I was in this uh, zone. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, anyone who is a victim of any kind should realize that, number one, we're not alone, and that when negative things happen, we can learn from them and evolve as a human being. I tell you, the story of my life, and I've shared it a lot with our listeners, is, is just that. And it's taken a lifetime for me to appreciate that those things, you know, my mama used to say, she used to say, Look, girls, honey, let me tell you, you know, it doesn't kill you, it's going to make you stronger. And this comes from a woman had a first child at 12, second child at 13. And, you know, we, we resonated with it as youngsters, but we absolutely embraced it throughout our lives. And in a sense, you're giving people the hope in what you're writing about and what you're talking about, but yet... This is filled with emotional and just raw humanity. And that, to me, is the gift of our time. How has this changed you? It's changed me for the better. And mm-hmm. all of the negative in my life, I have always said, I'm a better person for it. And just as you said, if it, you know, it's not going to kill you. You know, it, you can overcome it. Mm-hmm. And I have overcome negatives of my life. And I wanted to share this story because I believe these people uh, <clears throat> deserve to have their story told. And in the end, this is a story about the power of forgiveness and the capacity oh. to love and all odds. Um, and uh, I wanted to share this. And especially since Hurricane Laura just hit Lake Charles and Cameron again. Oh, yeah. And then uh, along comes Hurricane Delta. And in Hurricane Audrey, there were over 400 people, 400 people killed. In Hurricane Laura, there were 26. In Hurricane Delta, there were four. Um, but this is very sad. And they, the people of Louisiana said, maybe God's giving this to us so that we will be a witness to the world that we can overcome this. We can overcome this disaster. Um, yeah. So they have that feeling and they have that feeling of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get back to work and and um, put our lives back together. But I'll tell you, there's something you said earlier that I want to just get to real quick. And that is you and I kind of have a similar practice on a daily level. You know, it is that moment where we stop and, you know, prayers can come in many, many forms in many, many ways. But one of the greatest prayers that I learned at the deepest and darkest part of my journey a number of years back was no matter what shows up, it is the thank you prayer. 
And for people, it's thank you, God. For other people, it's thank you, universe. Whatever that is for people to be able to contemplate as you talk about and these moments of miracles and, and, and majestic fulfillment of others helping others. What you're talking about is that place in the heart that we don't allow to become crusted over and tarnished, right? And that's really that, your message in a, in, a, in a sense. It's really to guide people to say, your heart is still there. Your connection to the divine or whatever, the creator, whatever you call it, is still there. How can we help people remember that? Well, I think this book is a good example mm-hmm. to read other people uh, going through tragedies and how they overcome it. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But, it, you know, the, the negative gives us, us confidence to go forward and to share our stories. Our share, t- stories need to be shared with everyone so that it will help others to overcome and that the, the human spirit is just so indomitable, um, you will do anything to survive. And that's what this boy did in his story. You know, look, I could probably talk to you forever. I know you're doing a series of these. I want to thank you for your commitment to remind all of us of the dignity of the human spirit, you know, to remind us of what we're capable beyond what we can even imagine. Um, how do people find out more about you, about the book? And then I would love to know your personal message, what you'd like to leave us with. And again, thank you. Thank you for being that angel that does remind us. Um, thank you, Dr. Pat. Um, well, they can like my page on Linda S. Cunningham Author. Uh, they can go to YouTube and type in Early Thursday. I have a wonderful trailer to the, to the book. And also, I wanted to put in here, uh, and then, of course, you can get it at Amazon. You can get it at storebookbaby.com. The major retailers, you can get the book. But also, I wanted to say this. I'll be remiss if I don't put this in. Uh, The people of southwest Louisiana are hurting so badly. And there are organizations that you can donate to, boundlesspence.org, and put in hurricane relief. That's boundless. PennysOneWord.org, and then the CajunNavyRelief.com. These organizations are helping these people who have no electricity. They're bringing in batteries and um, flashlights and things like that because it's so dark at night for the elderly. And then, um, and then personally, uh, just remember that every human being is valuable and can experience transformation from the negatives of life. We are the miracle and we do not recognize it because in the very end, when after he had witnessed that leaf, he says, you know, if the leaf is a miracle, Mm. then what am I? I love it. And so he to believe uh, the two belief systems, one's positive, one's negative. Everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. And he chose that everything was a miracle. And so he recognized that if the leaf is the miracle, then what am I? I love it. We have to start everybody as if they're miracles. They are miracles from God or whoever you want to name the supreme being. Uh, You are a miracle. 
I'm going to I'm going to say that that is the way to end this segment. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. Um, hey, everybody, Thanks. let's take a short break. This is a reminder for all time, but especially now. We'll be right back. Take us with you on that morning commute. Download your favorite podcast from the Transformation Radio Network. Just visit transformationradio.fm. Get empowered. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. You know, look, you've heard me talk about what we're doing innovatively to really honor the people that have broken through. What do I mean by that? Well, you've heard me talk about my history, my story. You've heard me talk about my family, you know, having come from a family that is both, you know, Mediterranean and Latino. One of the things you learned is how brilliant those cultures are. But when we have a moment when we can stop and, and look at the accomplishments of folks that are doing extraordinary things to make this a better world, we have to stop for a minute and think about the award that we're about to talk about today and talk to Richard Montes today, joining me here today, the 2020 Corps Light Leader of the Year. And what does it mean to be this? What is this program that we've been talking about for several years now from Corps? What does it do to help us understand and honor the people that step forward in true leadership and what that means to take real life experiences, somebody born in uh, Santa Antonio, Texas, and, and then growing up in the poorest of the poor. He and I have that in common. Whether you call it a poor neighborhood or a project, it is the same. How does one rise up? Well, that is what Richard has done. Richard, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Oh, Pat, thank you so much for having me and for, for that introduction. I agree on all points. I'm so excited to be able to be the 2020 Coors Light Leader of the Year mm. and represent us having those very important conversations. So thank you for having me. Now, look, uh, it, it doesn't matter if you and I are talking about coming from, what do they say most of the time to come from the wrong side of the track? I, I don't know that I agree with that. I know that I grew up in a project. I know that you've had some tough times growing up in the neighborhood you grew up. But look, here we are. Here we are. And I want to ask you, yeah. what has this journey been like for you? And, and what has inspired you to not just overcome obstacles, but annihilate them? Absolutely. Well, I, I've heard that, that analogy before. And um, <clears throat> folks might use it to describe my neighborhood. But I always say I grew up on the right side of the track. Yeah. Because um, look at me now. Yeah. You know, and I, <laughs> I managed to be where I am because of the support of my community. You know, we may not have all the resources we need, and we may not have um, the level of education that we deserve just yet. Those, those are all basic human rights. But what we do have is a whole lot of heart, a lot of compassion, and a lot of understanding of who we are as a community. And I've only managed to be able to break those cycles because of the people around me who didn't always have the best education, who didn't always have the most resources, but they knew that in order to move our community forward, we need to support each other. And along with everything else that I've been able to, to get through in my life, being the Coors Light leader of the year is only because those folks in my community stepped up once again. 
And whenever I've had a call to action, and I know whenever our community leaders have a call to action, people step up. And that's exactly why we're here. And it's not just for Coors Light Leave, it is for the program, mm. but it's exactly why I'm here in my journey because of people around me. And, and, you know, we have to acknowledge this award for you, but let's stop for a moment and acknowledge the work that you have done to receive this award. You know, I could start by talking about you at, a, at an earlier age, or we can get right to the part where we talk about how you accumulate all of that energy, all of that positivity, all of that, you know, desire for service and bring that work to the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities. And by the way, the impact on the lives of Latinos. Tell us about that. Tell us about the thing that Coors saw and said, he's getting the award. Well, um, that, that uh, starts in so many different places. And I, I think I can talk all day long about the different <laughs> variables that managed to converge in my life um, to this point and other points. But um, I will say that the, 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 the program itself um, really is meant to highlight the, the work that individuals are doing at any given time. But I really believe that there, that all of the, the lead that is nominees this year yeah. um, are doing work because at some point in their lives, maybe even in their childhood, they had an aha moment, right? Sort of where this light bulb goes off where they say, you know, I feel compelled to be of service to people, to be of service to my community. And for me, um, that light bulb moment was really in in my hardship, the, the the sort of the trials and tribulations of my parents and my family that seemed to be a constant cycle mm. actually turned out to be sort of that light bulb for me. And seeing so many folks struggle around me, I thought, you know, this can be different. This has to be different. And you know, whether it was through the, the help of the universe or the grace of God or whatever you want to call it, uh, something helped project me in the right direction. And with the help of my teachers and family members and friends who helped me along the way. And today I get to put so many of those lessons and values into my work at the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities to help advance the idea of Hispanic higher education. Um, so those those lessons uh, have been cumulative in my life, and I'm sure in the lives of every Latino leader out there who's working to make a change in their neighborhoods. You know, I look at this and I look at my uh, my godchild and I look at her children and I look at, you know, what the accomplishments of, you, you know, uh, one of the, one of my nieces is NYU, you know, leadership in Latino community and Latino organizations. And I look at what that takes and I think about what you just said. And here's what I'm struck by. I am struck by how those situations in our lives helped us to become resilient without resentful. Do you understand what I mean with that question? Oh, absolutely. Um, there is a piece that uh, Coors Light uh, asked me to, to sort of write a quick, you know, blurb on. And mm -hmm. they said, what's one of the proudest things um, uh, about yourself? And I said, my, but one of the proudest things that I have about myself is being Latino and the mm -hmm. resilience that comes with being Latino. You know, I think it's, history has shown us that nothing has come easy to us. Mm -hmm. We have had to fight for every economic justice, every social justice, every political justice. 
And we've been doing it so long that I think that it's just resilience is part of the fabric of our DNA. Um, and for those of us who have managed to move forward in our educations and in our careers, I attribute it to that tradition of resilience in our community. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, spot on. Yeah, and you know, I wanna point out something else because I noticed they honored you for this as well. Um, I can't talk enough about it, about what it means to be community and family focused. And when I start to talk about this a little bit, people say, well, wait a minute, what about the LGBTQ community? What about, and I'm saying, wait a minute, you know, when we talk about community and caring for each other, we're talking about caring for each other, period. And I can't help but notice that about your journey, because what you're doing here and helping the membership grow and the work that you've done, there's a sense of community that is from the heart. How do you explain that for yourself? And who was your greatest influence in that way? I can talk about my papa, my grandpapa from Brazil, but you go ahead and title who, who touched you in the heart? Oh, gosh, that, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think part of the way that we move forward in in every di- in any dialogue really is by having difficult conversations. Mm. So yes, you know, it is a whole it is a a wholesome approach that we need to advancing all of us together. But there are groups, you know, uh, Black Americans, Latino Americans, yeah. the LGBTQ yeah. community, women, who all have to be part of that conversation, right? And and inclusivity that is required in those talks to be able to serve everybody. Um, I, I learned about diversity and inclusiveness at a very young age, and I managed to do it with lots of folks around me. But the person who really stands out for me in that respect is um, my, a teacher of mine, my English teacher from high school, Miss Patricia Salinas. Mm. And she was my English teacher and my student council sponsor. Uh, when I was a student at Sydney Lanier High School in San Antonio, Texas. And there was a time uh, in high school where I thought that maybe leadership wasn't for me because there were so many things that we were doing through trial and error at our school that I didn't feel like were paying off. And sometimes I felt like they were unappreciated. And I remember one day um, considering quitting the student council. And I went to Miss Salinas and I said to her, you know, I can't do this. I don't feel like anybody's paying attention. I don't feel like the work we're doing is is headed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And people, I feel like people don't appreciate it. And she said, Richard, look, if you really have a passion for public service, you're going to come across all kinds of people in your life from every background with every kind of attitude under the sun. <laughs> some will be pleasant. Some will be difficult. Some, some will embrace you and some won't. But you do public service and you do this job because it's the right thing to do and not because you expect to get anything in return. And so from that lesson, I managed to remember that I'm going to encounter all kinds of people from all walks of life and that that the work that I do is going to impact some of them. Mm -hmm. It will. And some of them, some of them, it won't. But keep going, because the longer you go, the more people you get to impact and I think that more than anything, this award from the Coors Light Leave It Is program is validating that that work is actually making a difference. Oh, boy. 
You just nailed it. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned in the community is that if there was ever a time for us to come together to creatively and innovatively, you know, look at higher education institutes and how to cultivate, you know, Hispanic talent, there was never a more prevalent time. I mean, even if people listening to this think I have nothing to offer, that is not true. You know, we have a community here of people that are just sharing stories. They're talking stories. They're saying, look, this is what it was like generations ago in my country. This is what we brought forward. This is the love we bring. What is your vision moving forward? What will you do to continue to not just build a bridge, but make that bridge open and free without tolls for everybody? That's a great question. Well, I hope that at the very least, uh, through the Coors Light Leaders campaign and mm. through my work at Haku and inner city development, that I can serve as a connection point between our community and other communities to come together to advance that necessary dialogue um, and, and make a call to action to Latinos who are emerging leaders, who are leaders in their industry, in nonprofits, in corporations, what have you. If you have managed to break cycles um, and you have managed to survive in these very difficult times and environments, you have a moral responsibility to reach back out to, chat to, kids, to kids in your neighborhood who might be facing the same challenges and helping raise them up. Be a mentor. Come back to our neighborhood. Help us continue to make our communities better. And to me, um, that, that's the most important uh, part of this all. And I know that we need to move on to other interviews, but yep. I want to say thank you so very much for having me, Pat. Yeah. And I hope your listeners took something from today. Absolutely. And one last thing, would you go ahead and give people the website so they can find out all about what you just said? And then I'd like to know your personal message and what do you want to leave us with today? Sure. Um, the website is www.haku.net to learn about the nonprofit I represent. And to learn about Coors Light Leaders, it's www.coorslightleaders.com. I want to thank everybody who voted in this competition. It's because of you that we're going to be able to put $25,000 into Hispanic higher education and continue all the efforts that are necessary to continue advancing Latinos in higher education. Thank you. And I wait for you to run for Congress. How do you like that? That sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, I got you covered. <laughs> Come on, call me. All right, thank you so much. Right. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Imagine a world where good news, oh, yeah! positive information and stories were the mainstream. Tell us your positive story. Hashtag positivity rules. You are listening to the Transformation Radio Network. So welcome, everybody. Welcome. Many of you have watched us do our Facebook shows and do our programming, you know, at least 14 hours a week. And sometimes you'll catch me because I have my mask on. And that is because that is what we do here in order to continue to bring to you what the kind of programming is you want without hesitation and stop. We all early on, thanks to guidance of Jay Inslee and others, we have taken those actions. And as a result, here we are. But what about this? What about Halloween? What about COVID-19 meets the holiday season? 
What does that look like? Dr. Khalil Gates is joining me here today, pulmonary and critical care specialist at Northwest Memorial Hospital. And we need to talk about and, and really acknowledge holidays are feeling a bit different. Doctor, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And, and, you know, seriously, right? I mean, when I go out in the hall and I go to the restroom and I come back and I'm getting ready for my show, I sometimes forget. And so it is a new way of life. But I don't think we know what to expect around this holiday season, especially Halloween. Can you talk to what you've looked at, what you see, and what you suggest as we move into Halloween and beyond? Absolutely. I think that you hit a, a few key points and you said um, this is this is a new normal, right? It doesn't feel like it did last year. And, and it's okay in the sense of we have to establish new normals. And that's what we're looking as to do as we move forward into the holiday season. We're not recommending canceling the holidays. That's not fair. Like we've all endured a lot over the last seven, seven months, and we all look forward to the holidays. So we're just saying, hey, let's rethink what we do so that we can do it more safely. And that's really what we're promoting for all of the holidays that we're, we're approaching at this point in time. And I really am glad we're talking about it in this way because there are a couple things that come to mind. And that is we find ourselves, if not in vulnerable positions, but also let's just call it you know, that pressure we might get from being in a group to do some things that we didn't want to do. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is you have these moments where you think, oh, we're all hanging out together. I'm the only one with a mask. But let's talk about where we are, because I think since the time we booked this interview with you, the numbers have changed. I believe that we can celebrate and still be safe. And I'd love to hear from you as to how we do that. Absolutely. We, you're right. So the numbers across the country, across the nation are increasing. Even in other countries, we're seeing upticks in numbers. We were anticipating this. We knew that we were all going to go back inside and um, congregate a little bit more and we're going to see this. Okay. And so what we're saying now is let's stop that uptick by doing the things that we know work. Even when you come inside, we still have to mask. We still have to social distance. We still have to wash our hands. And it is those principles that we should apply to each holiday that's approaching. So Halloween, you don't have to not trick-or-treat, but perhaps you don't go and stick your hands and everybody's hands into the big basket of candy. Perhaps you have the <laughs> right. small goodie bags instead, right? Right. Um, if you're, you don't do the big groups that are moving down the street, like you social distance and have smaller groups. If the costumes don't have a mask, Let's get a matching mask to, you know, coordinate with the costume. So just do the things that we know reduce our risk. As far as Thanksgiving and Christmas and family gatherings, you know, there is increased risk if we all gather together inside, okay? If you, like for me, I am not gathering with my family this year, but that yeah. is an individual decision. I, that is a decision that feels safe for me because of the nature of what I do during this time. If that is not an option for you, there are other options you can take. If you're saying X, X, Y, and Z persons are coming home or coming over, then maybe you all quarantine for two weeks before you all gather. But even when you do that, you still have to mask. You still have to maintain distance. 
when it's time to eat, you can't all gather at the table. You have to have some distance so you can pull the masks down safely. So we have to be creative and in, in incorporate what we know works and reduce the risk, but still be able to interact um, and get that personal and emotional um, fulfillment during the holiday season. I want to ask you a specific question because um, we are uh, considered an essential business, but beyond all of that, you know, from the get-go, I followed our governor's advice. I mean, first of all, we were the state that had the first incident recorded, Washington Mm -hmm. State. So let's just be clear that, (laughs) I mean, this is going to turn out really differently here. But the point that I want to ask you about is this. There are many things we've learned about steps we can take. And some of Mm -hmm. them are on the book, some of them are not. The question that came Mm -hmm. up to ask you is the following. I was going to consider for my folks getting sort of the plastic face shield. Now, that doesn't mean you don't wear a mask, but there is a lot of confusion about face shield, glasses, mask. Can we touch on Mm -hmm. that for a minute? 100%. So you have to keep in mind that a mask does not take away the need. I mean, the face shield does not take away the need for a mask. It basically serves as another barrier of protection, and that is the eye. And so that is why goggles and and face shields uh, came into um, recommendations. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't negate the need for masking. It's another layer of protection. Um, Let's talk about a couple things because, yes, people are making the decisions that you just mentioned, whether to be with family or not. I want to just talk about Halloween for a minute because I made a comment to someone the other day, and actually I don't think it was, like, medically knowledgeable. What I said, and help me with this, is, look, um, what we're doing is, like, when the kids bring the candy home, We're taking the candy and we're going to lay it out and we're going to make sure it's in a separate place for at least three to five days. I don't know. Is that like a thing? Because then I went online and Googled it. Is there this period or knowledge about how to approach this that has steps like that that make sense? Not just because I say so, but because you're the doctor. (laughs) You've got to help me here. (laughs) So... I mean, that's actually, I didn't think, I sort of didn't think about that. I mean, that is an approach. You know, there were studies particularly very on in the pandemic that said how long the virus lives on various surfaces. And it was, you know, on this surface, a couple of days, on this surface, a week. And so, um, you know, it, again, it's about doing things that you feel are safe. And so you're right. Like, I wouldn't eat the candy right off the, you know, out right. of the, the pack. But maybe if you put it in a bag and kind of sit it off to the side, maybe that's okay. I don't know if there's any evidence to support that. It's all about what we can do to mitigate um, risk. Now, the thing of that is I want my candy on the 31st, so I don't want to have to wait. (laughs) But again, that that makes perfectly good sense for some people. And and I don't think we don't have the, the, the definite answers to all of this. We just have to do things that we know are safe. All right, let me talk about the thing that's killing people right now. I mean, and I'm not talking literally, I'm talking emotionally, mentally, and that is the shopping thing. I mean, if you talk to people right now, they are like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I need to be able to go shopping. I mean, you know, do I think there's a shopping addiction? I don't know that I want to say that, but here's what I want to say. There's an energy about going shopping and buying things for the holidays. Where, where are you on that? And what kind of advice can you give? Have, have the stores stepped up enough for us? What do you think? 
So I think the safest option is online shopping. That doesn't work for everybody. Like my husband hates online shopping. I get that. <laughs> so if, <laughs> I, on the other hand, like being like self-delivered to my door and having nice things when it does. But if you are someone who needs to be in the stores, okay, understand the risk that you're taking and understand the things that you can do to reduce the risk. That is, again, masking. That is remaining socially distant. That is carrying a bottle of hand sanitizer and intermittently, you know, cleaning your hands. Um, hopefully, the the various stores will help out as well uh, by decreasing the number of people in the the store at one particular time. Controlling the flow of traffic in the stores is also awesome here in Chicago, particularly in the midst of our surge. Yeah, you know, the aisles were marked of which way to go up and down the aisle so that you didn't have that cross interaction with other people. So there are ways to do this more safely. Um, obviously, you increase your risk as you know, when you consider that versus staying at home, but you can you can still minimize it. Look, there's a lot of things that we can talk about. I know these are short, but there is one thing that I have found now very controversial in me speaking with my friends and family, and that is the flu shot. Um, Every television commercial you pretty much see says, don't even think twice about this. Give us a sense of where you stand with flu shot and why. So I am pro flu vaccine. Uh, I had mine already, so I'm not asking people to do things I haven't done. Right. Um, so number one, we're approaching flu season. We know on an annual basis we have increased hospitalizations, increased ICU stays, and increased deaths during flu season. And so now you are taking those well-known risks and you're adding it in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Um, and so any way in which we can reduce the potential um morbidity and mortality of our citizens is the way we need to do it. And so I am all pro pro flu vaccine. Um, it's just one more thing to kind of decrease us getting ill during the, the flu season. You know, the hope is that masking and socially distancing will help with that. And so we may not see a bad flu season, but because we don't know, why take a chance? Let's do what we can um, and that what we know works, and that's getting a flu vaccine. Um, it, so my approach is if you never had one before, yeah. this is a great year to get it. And, and I want to I just uh, make sure that folks have the website because I know these are short interviews and I have one more question to ask. Um, how do people find out about what we're talking about today? How are you all getting the message out? Mm-hmm. So people can go to nm.org slash radio. Again, that's nm All right. One of the things that I have found here is that we have not missed a beat here. You know, there may have been Mm -hmm. a couple of days where people work from home, but we are a broadcast network. We have four channels up and running. We have producers in here getting ready to do a show in five minutes. The thing Mm -hmm. that I think is a misconception, and this is a conversation I'm getting ready to have with my folks, is even if you're sitting in a room and you're 10 feet apart, if you're on a phone, you really should have your mask on. And as I was looking at this, it's clear from from what you're sharing that that's important for a reason. Can you talk to that? Because if you're in a room with another person, even 10 feet apart, and you're not talking, maybe you take your mask off. But if you're on the phone and you're talking with clients or you're doing a show, 
what is the guideline you recommend? So the guideline I recommend is if you are with in a room with someone who is not, you know, part of your nuclear family, mm-hmm. you should be masked. Okay. Mm-hmm. We stay masked throughout the entire day in the hospital when we're together. And the recommendation is if we're going to go to lunch, we go to lunch and we eat lunch separately so that we can safely unmask. So we recommend six feet because we feel pretty comfortable about six feet. But if six feet versus 10 feet, we don't know if you're talking loudly, how far the droplets traveling. We don't have that down to a science. And so to prevent, you know, any uh, mistake from that, if you're in there with somebody else, let's put on a mask. If you have to take off your mask, you should be alone. And if there are common surfaces, we should be cleaning those down on a regular basis. Look, a lot of information, and you're providing an enormous service for people. I want to ask you this last thing. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? And please give that website out again. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you. So my personal message is I know we're tired. I'm tired as well. Um, pandemic fatigue is real, but we're still in the midst of this and we need to just hunker down and do the things that we know work. That is masking, that is social distancing, um, that is good hand hygiene, that is flu vaccines. We're going to get through this together and let's make it easier for all of us just by doing the things that we know work. Um, And so I thank you for the opportunity. And the website again is nm.org backslash radio. Thank you so much. And everybody out there, I am going to take the words right from Dr. Gates, right out of the right out, right out of the mouth right here. And that is we still can have a holiday and we still can be safe. Let's take a short break, everyone. We'll be right back. Listen while you work. Streaming live on any device. Tune in to the Transformation Radio Network. Visit TransformationRadio.fm. Your inspiration all day on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Joining me here today, Dr. David Eichenbaum. Why? Because we're talking about something that, first of all, personal has reached deep in my family and has affected my friends. So when we talk about diabetic, let me just say the word diabetic, we think about it in one particular way. But do we ever think about it? when it comes to increasing risk of permanent vision loss loss due to diabetic eye disease. Well, it is a real thing and it is a serious thing, but this is not without hope because Dr. David's joining me here today. He's going to get us up close and personal as to where we've been, where we are, and we are, where we are going to help people out. Thank you for joining me here today. Um, doctor, listen, you know, this is your life. This is your life path. This is something you have been passionate and purposeful and directive about. Give people a snapshot or a bird's eye view of what we're talking about when we're talking about this type of vision loss. So thanks, doctor, for having me on the show. You I'm bet. grateful to be here. Uh, and I am really thrilled to tell your patients, especially your diabetic listeners today, diabetic patients out there, um, that we've done a lot 
to do better in diabetic eye disease. And as a clinician and a, and a clinical scientist and principal investigator, we're trying to do more. We're always trying to do better. And we have had incredible success over the last 10 to 15 years to do better for diabetics. And over the next 10 to 15 years, we will have even more success. We will do even more. A bird's eye view of diabetic macular edema and diabetic eye disease is that in diabetes, high blood sugars damage the smallest blood vessels in the body. The smallest blood vessels are in the eyes, the kidneys, and the tips of the toes and fingers. And that's why diabetic patients suffer vision loss, kidney disease requiring dialysis, and neuropathy with sometimes amputations of toes and things like that. What we're hoping to do, what I'd like to raise the level of awareness of and have a call to action today for your diabetic listeners about is good blood sugar and blood pressure control primarily. Control the diabetic health, control the blood glucose and blood pressure, and that substantially reduces the risk of small blood vessel damage taking vision in advanced diabetic eye disease. Yeah, and you know, thank you for joining me here today because this is more prevalent than people know. You know, this is, of course, we're having conversations right now, and I've done a number of different shows and webinars on diabetes because basically when I think of my family and what they've gone through and my sister dying on a hospital floor at 450 pounds, I'm struck by how little we know or are paying attention to about what you're bringing to the forefront. Um, Look. What is the population? What what are we looking at in terms of numbers here, if you don't mind, doctor? No, not at all. So you're exactly right. Diabetes is a real public health scourge. It's really a problem. It's probably the most important public health problem in the United States um, that's going to be ongoing aside from, you know, aside from our current acute situation with the pandemic. We have a long-standing public health problem with diabetes. There are almost 8 million Americans with diabetes, and it's estimated that about 40% of these Americans have diabetic eye disease. And of the approximately 8 million diabetics, about 750,000 or about 10% have some diabetic eye disease that requires treatment. So there's a lot of people out there and only about half less are plugged into the eye care system at all. So there's a huge unmet need to diabetic eye exams and diabetic eye care. Yeah, and and this is really for people. This is a conversation that once upon a time uh, had very little hope, but now we're bringing a new conversation to the forefront. Can you give us some insight on where we've been, where we are today, and what you see the future in the vis in the vision for to get people help for this? Sure. So talking about diabetic eye disease, like diabetic macular edema, that requires treatment. Where we were. Previously, 10 to 15 years ago, we looked at laser and surgical treatments, which were meant to slow the inevitable progression of vision loss. And they were very effective for their time compared to the absence of treatment that preceded that. Today, we look at sophisticated pharmacotherapeutics, sophisticated drugs, engineered antibodies that are put inside the eye and actually improve or restore vision in diabetics. And those are used in concert with the older treatments 
but our lines of therapy have changed. And oftentimes these medicines inside the eye are the first line of therapy for our diabetics with much, with much better results than we had when I started training 15 years ago in retina. In the future, we're looking at sophisticated medicines that look at new modes of action. We're looking at implantable devices that will reduce patients' burden of care. We're looking at both improving our results and reducing the burden of diabetic treatment because we know that diabetics with advanced eye disease have other advanced medical problems. And there's only so many days in a week that patients can see doctors. So in the future, we're looking at better efficacy with lower burden and Compared to 15 years ago, we've already made great strides. You know, I want to ask you this question, if I can. Um, You have been, how should I say it? It's almost as if this is a soul path for you, a walk that brings passion and purpose. What was it for you in your life and in the direction that you went to choose this? What were you seeing? What was it that touched your heart about this and about what the possibilities are? So it's a great question. I appreciate you asking that, Doc. Um, The most important person in my path to become an ophthalmologist was actually a patient while I was in medical school. I thought I wanted to be a trauma surgeon or a cardiothoracic surgeon, something with big scalpels that's traditionally heroic. But I had a patient who was an ophthalmologist who was suffering from a progressive form of multiple sclerosis with progressive neurologic disease, and she inspired me to become an ophthalmologist because of her passion for the field. And I actually kept in touch with her, and I've been grateful to her until she passed away a number of years ago now. Um, And she changed the course of my career, and it was her passion that inspired me as a medical student to focus on retina. I was inspired by the intrinsic beauty of the retinal anatomy. I think it's beautiful. The imaging is beautiful. The exams are beautiful. And I had some retinal mentors, both in general eye training and then in fellowship training, who were passionate about retinal research. And that inspired me to see the potential. And I still see the potential, 13 years out of training, that we can do better. And I'm grateful to try to do better for our patients. Um, I know you've got to run off. Um, how can people find out more about this? Let's make sure we're giving people information about this um, and uh, what they can do about it. What's the best way to go about that? The best resource for patients that I always recommend is the American Academy of Ophthalmology's patient pages. That's www.getismart.org. That's one word, Get. I-E-Y-E smart.org and those are pages developed for patients by the American Academy of Ophthalmology and patients can look for the many manifestations of diabetic eye disease there as well as pages on many other common eye diseases that are written in a very reasonable and accessible fashion. I think it's a great resource for patients. And I appreciate that because, you know, when we're talking about ophthalmology and we're talking about someone's eyesight, there's nothing more powerful for people to want to know what they can do to stay healthy, to be able to see to be able to have a long life with acute vision. And so I want to thank you for all that you're doing. Last question, what's your personal message, Doc? What do you want to leave us with today? My personal message, what I want to leave the diabetics listen to this radio show with is please get plugged into healthcare. Don't fall off the system. Mm. 
your doctor, be healthy, strive to be a healthy diabetic, and your vision will stay good for your entire life. Boy, I'll tell you, ditto on that. We learned a ton from all that you've done. Thank you, doctor. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Take care.